Welcome to Money Isn't Scary, a podcast for women to explore our fears around money and inspire each other to be financially empowered. I'm Megan Dwyer, and I'm making it my personal mission to remove the taboo around money and help women rewrite their stories so they can stop staying small and begin to live life on their terms. In this show, we get real and uncomfortable as we unpack our beliefs, thoughts, and behaviors that aren't serving us anymore. I can't wait for you to join me on this journey. So let's dive in. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Money Isn't Scary podcast. I'm Megan Dwyer. Today, I'm sharing my conversation with behavior scientist and burnout survivor, Dr. Jacqueline Kerr. This is an incredible and eye-opening conversation for any woman, whether you're a mom or not, if, whether you're working or not, whether you've actually experienced burnout or not. Through sharing her own lived experience, Jacqueline is working to shine a light on an issue that is really overwhelming for a lot of us and really important. And her work is inspiring everyone to find the support and encouragement that we need in order to create healthier homes and healthier work environments so that women can actually thrive. So who is Jacqueline Kerr? Dr. Kerr is a behavior scientist and burnout survivor. She is in the top 1% of most cited scientists worldwide and received over $56 million in funding from the National Institutes of Health to research health behavior change solutions for individuals and communities. Dr. Kerr left her position as a public health professor in 2018 and now hosts the podcast Overcoming Working Mom Burnout, where she interviews CEOs, researchers, diversity experts, and leadership coaches. Her TEDx talk, How to Stop Burnout Before It Starts, explains how burnout is a multi-level problem and provides actionable solutions that we can all use to change the societal norms around burnout based on behavior change science. Dr. Kerr is helping women leaders with training and peer learning collaboratives on how to lead through change, how to manage change, and how to leverage change for transformational organizational change. Her behavior science tools and evidence-based frameworks and strategies help leaders move beyond the status quo to lead the thriving, diverse workforce of the future. She is so cool. I have to tell you guys. In our conversation, we talk about the different types of burnout, the impact of traditional gender roles on burnout, how money plays into all of this, and how we can prevent burnout, and so much more. You guys can connect with Dr. Kerr at her website, drjacquelinekerr.com, and that's J-A-C-Q-U-E-L-I-N-E-K-E-R-R.com. Her podcast, Overcoming Working Mom Burnout, you got to go check out her TEDx talk, which is called How to Stop Burnout Before It Starts. And I will put all of these links in the show notes as well. All right, you guys, without further ado, here is my conversation with the delightful Dr. Jacqueline Kerr. Enjoy. Hi, Jacqueline. Welcome to the Money Isn't Scary podcast. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I am really excited to be talking to you today because burnout is a topic that has become very top of mind for me recently. I was completely burnt out at the end of last year. I had just gone through a crazy busy season at work, a lot of family and personal issues that I was dealing with, and still also feeling like I have to make the magical Christmas for my 
little kids. So it's, it was a tough stretch for me. And um, I've done a few episodes specifically on my podcast around burnout, because I know that I am not alone. This is a very common feeling for women and moms in particular these days. So I would love to hear your story and why you got into the work that you're doing now. Great. Thank you so much. And actually, one of those things is, of course, there's this expectation to have this magical Christmas. So we can let go of that. But if that expectation is actually one of your values and meaningful, it's okay to do. The most important thing is to say, in January, I as a mom and taking a mom vacation where I forget about parenting, work or everything and go away. So as long as you've got something organized to get over that hump in the year, then then it helps. And, and that can be challenging to organize depending on your family situation. Um, oh, yeah. But that's something that I really appreciated when I first got a parent coach because I was struggling with my parenting. That's what she said. She gave me permission to have a break from my children. I'm not a bad mom when I do that. And that has actually been a huge part of my burnout solution and recovery because um, I really needed to get away and get a break. My brain started to work and it allowed my husband to step into his role as, as dad and perfectly capable of looking after the kids. And so as long as I could remind myself, I'm I'm not a bad mom just because I need a break from my kids. Yeah. And that is a tough thing to say and even tougher to implement, I feel like for a lot of women. Right. And even though um, sometimes I've done it where literally I just went to a co-working space during a week and said to everyone, you won't see me. And I just got home like at nine o'clock at night once the kids had gone to bed and I did no shopping and no thinking. So I didn't necessarily have to to pay for, for you know, actually a vacation or being away. Um, so there's different ways to 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 make it work. And I think it's also a struggle for my husband if I do it during the week because he's much better if it's a weekend. So as long as there's some time where you feel like you can get a break, I think that's important. That's such a priority for me these days. <laughs> I will tell you that. Um, so let's get into it. What's your story? How did you start to feel the burnout? And why did you feel that this was really important to continue on as a mission for you and in and, and your work? Right. And when it actually happened, I, I didn't know I was experiencing burnout. I, I thought perhaps I was having a mental health breakdown or a um, midlife crisis. And it wasn't until a couple of years afterwards, when I started to read about burnout, the scientific literature about burnout, and go, oh, that was me. Yes, I was um, tired, but wired. I couldn't switch off. I was feeling very resentful and ruminating. I had become cynical um, around my work. This, this had no meaning to me. But then I also had physical symptoms that a lot of people have where it's not until their body collapses that they start paying attention to what their brain's been trying to tell them so I mean I was having um started to have panic attacks and for me it manifested mostly in suicide ideation I just felt this need to escape I couldn't face the year and it sort of happened at the beginning of the year because I was crying on the way to work and on the way home so I think what's really important to understand there is job burnout which is recognized by the World Health Organization and then there is also 
parental burnout. Um, and so some people that are experiencing job burnout, they go home and that's their relief and their their space to to relax and and decompress from work. Some people they're having parental burnout. It's a, it's at home. They can go to their job and forget about the fact that they're a parent and they don't want to take that parenting life to work. Um, and then in my situation, it was in both places. So it was really helpful for me to understand that there were these two types of burnout because what I was trying to get my head around was this, um, the depression, people talk about depression being in all areas of your life. And so I, I wasn't depressed in the way where you um, might feel lethargic or, um, you know, not positive about things. I mean, I was achieving so much in so many areas and and, and had so much energy, but it just always felt like I was never enough. So kind of different symptomology to, to depression. But when I learned about these two different types of burnout, then it made sense why it was in more than one arena of my life. Um, and I had no problem getting out of bed or anything, <laughs> but that yeah. was the problem. I was getting up at five to run the dog and I'd probably work through till 1 a.m., you know, on my computer in bed writing a grant or something. So, I mean, I just, I, I wasn't getting, you know, hardly any sleep and, um, so yeah, that's how it manifested for me. And it really wasn't until then I understood, okay, this is burnout. And the important thing about job burnout is that it actually comes from the environment in the workplace. It's a workplace stressor. Um, and so it comes from lack of autonomy. It comes from lack of collegiality, it comes from overwork, but it's also lack of recognition, lack of reward, injustice in, in the workplace. These are all caused by the workplace so that's one of the biggest problems is when workplaces say go look after yourself do self-care take a vacation and then you do and maybe you decompress and then you go back and you realize oh it's this place and and yeah. and this combination of people that's not fitting with my my life values or my personality um so there's a, that interaction that's important um, but the biggest problem is at the moment is that companies are just pointing at people and saying burnout is you not managing your stress. And it's like burnout is because of the stress that our organizations are, are causing. Well, there are so many things <laughs> that I want to say there. But yeah, I mean, in, from a job burnout perspective and then from a motherhood parental burnout perspective, it's the systemic and cultural expectations, right? I mean, you think about the concept of, I think about this of like a midlife crisis or something like, oh, you're all of a sudden, you don't want to have this life that you had always wanted, or you need a break from it, then that must be your fault. There's something wrong with you. Or I love this whole self-care movement, right? It's self-care isn't going to make the problem go away. I'm sorry, but going to go get a, a massage isn't going to help the underlying issue here. So I think that the culture tells us that it's us, it's our fault, but doesn't also acknowledge that the expectations that are out there are completely unattainable for mothers these days, or parents. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No. And it, it it has changed. The expectations have changed. And, and there was a great book, you know, why do women not sleep? And it's because of all these 
additional expectations if we think about our our potentially our parents generation it's come home when the streetlight comes on you know yeah. versus now you know the, the expectations that we have and and really that as a mother this perfectionist mother this martyr to motherhood this super mom this super mom is absolutely the expectation that you work like you don't have children and that you parent like you don't have a job and and it's been shown that this need to be available at work 24 7 this always on always available model of work then is creating gender inequalities because mothers aren't always available 24 7 and then the you know the the next shift we take on at home um is not just the time and the effort we put into it it's the mental load that that creates managing everything in these these households and again you can say well you don't have to take your kids to extracurricular activities and in some ways, I, I hope that COVID made us think about what are our family values? What are what is quality time with our families? But again, the pressure of what it is that your kids have to have on their res- resume to, to get to the next stage is real and is out there. So, you know, it, it's just like the bar is constantly being raised without any more hours in the day. Yeah. And I think it, to take it a step further, right, that impact on on mothers, societal impact also has a financial impact, right? Because we then feel like our role is to be the perfect mother and to do the best at our jobs, right? But it's not possible. It is just not possible to do it all. And so I feel like women then, you know, might like in the pit, like you just see what what happened in the pandemic, the role of doing everything fell on to the women. And so many women therefore then either left the workforce or reduced their hours or their responsibilities at work, which then takes a financial toll. And I think so much of that also has to do with the fact that women in as a culture and historically, right, we're not educated on finances. We're not taught to like it or to to manage it well. And so I think it just naturally, we just fall back into these gender roles that are so antiquated. And it's so frustrating because we we then also aren't feeling our worth either. Right. right. That's so important. And I agree. I feel like we stepped way backwards in the pandemic, you know, into the 50s again. And I think what's so important is we think about something like burnout. And if it results in in you having to leave your job and, and in my case, to a certain extent, a, a career, um, then, you know, this is why more women do end up in poverty in old age, you know, so so we know there are financial implications of this. Um, I think also I interviewed last week um, um, Katika Roy, and she very much was like, I am a breadwinner mother, and I have had to negotiate for pay from that position as a breadwinner mother. And there are so many mothers now who are breadwinner mothers. Um, so, I mean, th- you know, and again, it's it's not that we're not capable of negotiating, it's that we're penalized when we negotiate and self-promote because it's not stereotypical for the nurturing, caring, volunteering mother to do that. And that's why more women are doing the unpaid office housework, which again, affects our promotion um, ability. And so there's there's so many ways that those stereotypes 
um, you know, feed into um, our ability to succeed and also then shut men out too because again men are suffering under the the um men aren't vulnerable men aren't caregivers you know the incompetent caregiver stereotype for men is meaning they they can't step into the home in a way they want to meaning they don't get the education to learn how to be a parent because parenting is supposed to be natural and the mums are good at it and so dads then have never learned. So it's not only that they then don't have the skills when they try to step in, um, you know, they're faced in society and at work with um, these stereotypes or actually with policy implications. So for example, in the UK, there's a requirement that both men and women um, should be allowed to have flexible time. There's legislation around that. But we still see that really only women are being given, mothers are being given that flexible time. So even though there's policies, they are being interpreted differently in workplaces and men are not being given that opportunity. They're always being asked, can your wife not do this? Isn't your wife, you know, so it it, it works both ways. It's not working for anyone at the moment. <laughs> this. Yeah this pressure to perform. And also it's like, where do we have this, this myth and this mindset that more is better? I mean, the reason we have legislation and, and re restrictions around work hours is because they found a long time ago that more hours isn't better. Um, and so when people ask me about things like, well, how do I give a, a merit um, review and um, a merit um raise to a caregiver who's exhausted and doesn't have anything left to give and I said well one have you done an equity review for them first to even see if they're being rewarded for the work that they're currently doing and two what are they contributing during the workday women are much more likely to contribute to DI efforts to mental health of their colleagues but those things are not part of performance criteria so that's, again, why we burn out, because we're not being rewarded for the things that we actually are good at and, and that we're doing. So that value that you mentioned is so important. And I think that was a really important mind shift change in my journey. Um, Eve Rodsky's book, um, Fair Play, explains how to try and start to share that mental load in the home. The system didn't work for my husband and I. He wanted us to share more things together. And that's when I discovered I need the total break. That's what's going to work for me. Um, but basically that system says your hour is absolutely equal to your husband's hour, no matter what you earn. And that was so important for me to understand because again the example that she gives in her, in her book is that she was away there was trash left on their front lawn and her husband never picked it up so she went out and picked it up and she was like I don't have more time than him mm -hmm. and and my time is equally values him so why is it that I'm the one picking up the trash. So when you kind of think about it in that way, you make choices. We're all making choices. He basically said, my time is more valuable to me and I don't want to spend it picking up trash. Right. <laughs> so that's the yeah. shift that we have to have yeah. and then negotiate like, well, someone's got to pick up the trash, but you know, so I think that, but it comes from that place of 
um, I don't have more time as a woman. And even if I'm paid less, it doesn't make my hour less valuable. Which really puts it into perspective a lot, right? Like the things that we're, that we're focusing our time and our attention on and the mental load. I mean, that just says so much of it, right? I mean, we are the ones that are, you know, thinking about what the kids are going to eat for snacks this week at school, emailing the teachers to let them know their dismissal schedules. And, you know, like, and I'm not saying that that is singularly a mother's role. I mean, my husband very much is involved in those responsibilities as well. But we do have kind of this ongoing checklist, I think, in our heads and things that to be thinking about that um, that contribute to that pressure that we put on ourselves in a different way than I think certainly happened prior to having kids, right? Right. And 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 there's a there's a couple of things about that. It's also reinforced by the schools. They will call the mom, not the dad, for yeah. example. So yeah. so there's all sorts of reasons um why why that happens. And that's again why I say the total break for me is is the best way so that the shopping list and the that the all the you know moving parts is removed from my brain. Um, but I think that's again why paternity leave is so important. Um, so men unlearn the mental load. They literally, that men have a period of time where they are the main caregiver. So it's not that paternity leave coincides with, with um, maternity leave in the Scandinavian companies, um, countries, sorry, they mandate the paternity leave happens that men have to take it and then they give you the space across a year to take it so that's usually the men then take it once the breastfeeding is over and then the woman goes back to to work at that phase and so the man is the sole caregiver so he learns about the mental load so his brain starts to do the same thing it's not that his brain's not capable of it he's just never had to um you know we've jumped in and done it because again the stereotypes are that that's that's our job. But one of the dads that I interviewed, so so my part podcast is Overcoming Working Mom Burnout, but this season I'm focusing on dads because yes. they're such important allies. And I actually believe that um, if caregiver dads, people who, men who have been caregivers, dads or for their elderly, um, men who've been caregivers, they're the some of the people that could change the world because if they have had that experience of being a full-time caregiver and go back into a leadership position, I believe they can really um, use that power to, to make change. So I think they're such important allies. Yeah. But this one dad described this fantastic system that he and his wife had is where they do share the mental load. So instead of it being, did you pack that? And then you get on vacation and the thing isn't packed. Literally, it's like you're packing and I'm checking that what you packed before we leave on vacation. So they have this system where they're both just double checking each other. And then it's like, then it's nobody's fault either. And they actually then have this much um, more um, bulletproof system for making sure things happen because they both know what's going on. They've got a prime person. He described it as, well, the days, you know, she's cooking, she's chef and I'm sous chef. And then we swap around. So it's thinking about that. That's your job. That's your, you know, you're going to primarily deal with that part of the mental load. But I'm also not 
you know, going to point fingers at you for not doing it. I'm going to help you. I'm going to either remind you or I'm going to then be your check. And they just swap roles. And so that to me sounded like such a fantastic system because it's like there's two of you in, not in every situation, but when there is two of you, um, you, you work together to back each other up, right? And it's that you've got each other's back. And I was like, oh, that feels so great. That's not how, if you know, it seems to be, but that sounds so great. Imagine this is a partnership where you've got each other's back for, for all the mental load. And the expectations are clearly communicated, right? Versus like going into something. And I feel like, you know, that situation with that dad that you were talking about is so incredibly ideal. But I would say, I don't know, in 90% of the households out there, everybody's winging it, right? So I think just naturally you go back into those just, you know, 1950s historical gender roles and the expectations on the woman are, you know, more of like the, the household upkeep and the kids and the, and maybe the, you know, the man is more of the taking up the garbage and doing the the lawn and kind of the, you know, the, the more kind of physical kind of expectations. So I think that uh, that's really cool. And I love that you're working on your podcast. You're doing this season specifically talking to dads, because what that does is start to make us more aware of the, the gender stereotypes that are also associated with dads in these circumstances. We were talking earlier before, before we recorded about how, you know, in my situation, you know, I, you know, my, my husband had been unemployed for a period of time. I was the sole sole breadwinner for a period of time and now still am, but he's working, but I do feel like there's being the breadwinner is such a loaded topic for me in particular. I did a whole specific episode on my podcast about it. And, and there's so many feelings that come up for me that are kind of underneath the surface, right? I I mean, I am a huge proponent of women's empowerment, but then, you know, at the end of the day, I still kind of, I grew up in this fairy tale world where I think deep down that someday, you know, someone's just going to come and and take care of me. And that's not reality. Right. Mm -hmm. So that was almost like this kind of culture shock. And then you think about it from the other side, from the man's perspective, it's more of like, you know, a, a whole deeper concept around worthiness and, you know, what, what is actually my job here and who am I if I'm not able to be the quote unquote provider, right? And that can cause dynamics and tension, I think, in in couples. And again, money is such a huge point of contention in so many marriages and relationships, right? And so I feel like that can cause, um, you know, things to go a little bit off or awry and that can be a huge challenge if you're not communicating around it, right? Right, uh, no, I think, and I think that's so important and, and and you know, kind of, I was gonna share with you my um, money journey a, a little bit in terms of, um, my dad worked, he's an accountant and um, worked very hard. We we moved around the world um, with my dad's job. It was the priority for her, our family because it 
his his role was to provide for his kids future that's very much what he saw so I ended up in boarding school and um being very lonely and thinking that this life as a family um is not what I would want for for my family so one of the things that I saw was this kind of obsession with with money just trying to provide for our future but it felt to me like an obsession with money was something that I didn't want. I didn't want to go into business. I wanted to um, go into a job where I was serving people. And so that's what I ended up going into academia. Um, as you know, you're, you're a servant teacher. You're, you're actually, you're, you're supposed to sacrifice yourself to the cult of service there. And that's, you know, part of the environment. Um, and I, I worked in public health where I'm helping and empowering other communities to to have better health so to me what I was paid was less important because I hadn't seen as money bringing happiness right I had seen money as bringing loneliness and and so then you know you know when I got married my husband had the opposite he had grown up um, very poor thought money was very important was making all his work decisions based on money and being able to again provide for our children so I think just in that mindset um, you know what I was doing even though my career was so important to me and I also thought it was such an important role in the world too because I was earning less um, and because it wasn't this business career, I think, was always seen as being lesser. Um, and so that definitely was a struggle for us. And, and what I didn't communicate was how important my career was to me. I mean, my, growing up, all I wanted was a career. I did not want kids. And then we got married and, and had children. And I still wanted my career. Like <laughs> when he was like, I... I want to, you know, I'm the provider and I'm like, I want to be the provider too. And so it was like, we're both in this canoe, you know, rowing in different directions. Um, So it really has been such a struggle. Um, And again, you know, to, to take the pay cut of losing that to, um, you know, lose all the benefits that you have from being in academia financially has been a struggle where I'm now, you know, an entrepreneur and, you know, having to focus on how much I earn now and, and wanting to do better at that because I still want to be an equal contributor. Um, so it's, it's hard. It's, it's been, um, it's been definitely part of our our struggle of understanding each other's roles. And you're not alone, I think. <laughs> There's probably very few households in the world that are having these kind of conversations. And, and what I want to do is normalize them because I think so many of us are sort of suffering in silence, right? Right. Both moms and dads, they're they're feeling these pressures and these expectations on themselves that don't necessarily have to be that way, right? We feel it because of the, you know, systemic cultural issues. We feel it because of the pressures, how we grew up, what we learned as kids from our families. And we're putting these pressures on ourselves. And I feel like that is creating, <laughs> contributing to this mm-hmm. ability, this quick ability to just transition into burnout, like with the flip of a switch. Like, I feel like when we're living in this kind of fight or flight stage, 
for so long, one little thing can all of a sudden <laughs> just cause you to just go crazy. Right. So I think, um, you know, to the, to, to your point, I think earlier, this has been such an epidemic in our country and, and across the world. Right. And, and I think that if we can have the knowledge and the, the vulnerability to share and talk about it and be authentic with our families, with our spouses, with our friends, with everybody around us, then that's a start, right? I'm curious, mm-hmm. kind of from your perspective, what else can we do to sort of prevent getting to this point? Right, right. So um, the, there's so many little signals that you can start to pay attention to along the way. Um, there is a 12 stages of burnout um, described by two psychologists. And step one on that is the need to prove yourself, which leads to overwork and then the whole cycle. Um, so we have to think about what is it that that's causing us to prove ourselves? Is it because um, we've had to work twice as hard and get paid half as much, you know, real, real reasons that you face every day, depending on, um, you know, which population group you're in. Is it because you've got a personality type that's, that's very driven or a personality type that's a people pleaser. And so you spend so much time over giving to, to others. Um, And then, (laughs) yeah. So I mean, their personality tendencies, so we can we can change those, um, or is it again something more cultural that that that, that we've got the expectation? Again, um, it's not just these expectations to be um, caring and volunteering, but when we, as I mentioned, when we do ask for promotions or when we do try and negotiate, you know, we're we're a penalized that. So that again goes back to we are having to work harder to get you know, half as far and be paid less. So, you know, that's why we end up on these burnout cycles. So early ways of thinking about it is, you know, what are those personality types I might be bringing and and are they valued? Like a a people pleaser is a giver. Like in some workplaces, being giving and caring and collaborative is exactly what's needed. Um, So thinking uh, about places where your personality may, may fit better within the environment. Um, But then also, you know, workplaces recognizing that inequality in pay, which again, that's one of the things that pisses me off is that, you know, my daughter's generation will not see pay inequality, you know, her daughter's, you know, that's what's so annoying, is that we still have this pay inequality. And then when we have places where um, they want to do something like transparency in pay that is definitely a way to improve pay um, equality. We've shown that transparency transparency in pay came in as a policy into Canada and we saw reductions in the um, pay um, inequalities. So we definitely know it works. But not here in the US, because, you know, when you try to make pay transparency um, important, companies are working out, how can I get away with not doing this? This is going to be a nightmare. I'm going to have to pay out more money because they know that the inequalities are there. Um, So, yeah. And so it's it's like these, um, you know, something like pay inequality 
leads to burnout um, and leads to, as I say, huge poverty in older women. Um, so, you know, these, these um, th addressing these, these very um, specific issues can definitely help. Um, and um, also then um, lots of things in the workplace related to having less bias promotional criteria, those types of things uh, are going to help. Because again, if it's a single manager, male or female with their biases judging a person versus if it's a team decision, if there's really clear promotion criteria, if self-appraisal isn't part of it, because again, that 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 isn't actually, that that introduces its own bias. Um, and then again, if we make well-being and DEI and retention and career development all parts of performance um, criteria instead of just the the, the money impact, we're going to have um, more profits because, again, for every 10% reduction in pay inequality leads to a 1% improvement in revenue for the company. So these things are related. We have all the data to do it. There is just still the struggle of the will. Um, and as I say, it, it seems to be more so here in the US because because other countries have successfully um, done it. And then I think sort of personally, back to what you said, the honesty that we need. So, for example, when I shared with my husband that I found certain parts of parenting very draining and very difficult. For example, um, talking to the kids about their mental health, for example, we decided I'm still probably of the two of us, the better person to do it, but it, it leaves me very drained. So now mm. I admitted that to him. So when I do then sit down and, and have one of those conversations with my son or daughter, come back in to say the, the bedroom at bedtime, my husband says to me, I realize that those conversations are hard for you. So thank you so much for doing it. And, and that's what we do now. We, we thank each other for every small thing that we do because mm -hmm. we had a period, my husband had a rather bad um, e-bike accident and, and broke his leg in multiple places and, and was really um, stuck in a chair for, you know, over six months. Um, I suddenly realized all what he had been doing around the house yeah. and how difficult it was when he didn't do those things. So I appreciated him suddenly. So that is definitely something that we realized and discovered, you know, my love languages are um, positive affirmation. I need somebody to say, not thank you. That was a great meal. You made it taste delicious, but thanks for the time and effort you put in to make us a home cooked meal. Right. And my husband's is, um, quality time and and touch so he needs more hugs and he needs me to sit on the sofa watching some football with him that would have never occurred to me as a way of showing right. love so it's great because then I'm also like realizing that me actually chilling for a little bit with him is improving our relationship right so um these are things that that we've done so that you know we can go ahead I was gonna say it all starts with us and this is where I get to ultimately, I feel like on every episode of my podcast, because it's tuning in to us and who we are and what we even like to do, right? Because so many moms in particular <laughs> have lost their identity from before they became mothers, right? 
and learn learning about you know the self-awareness like who we are what makes us tick I mean my husband and I are very very different I adore having these very long deep conversations and talking about the meaning of life and crying and get into all this stuff and he can do it for about two minutes and then he checks out he's done and it used to frustrate me so much I'm like you don't want to have these conversations and I would react and it just caused tension and then I'm like that's just who he is he's got ADHD he has a hard time focusing. He just, he'd rather watch sports. <laughs> he'd so much rather watch sports. And that's his thing. Like that's his way of kind of checking out. And so to just know that it has, we're all unique in our own way, I think helps to understand how the dynamics within, you know, a, a relationship and taking it a step further helps to us to be able to recognize our needs and therefore be able to communicate what our needs are to the person who is trying to help us on this journey with all the crazy expectations and responsibilities, right, that we have in front of us. Right. And I think Esther Perel said it really well, that we now expect our partners to be everything that we used to have that they're, they're not just um our lover and um but there's a financial provider there are village there are um everything so you know before when we lived in close-knit communities we had so many more people that we relied upon for other parts of our lives and yes. now we're we're disconnected from those other parts and those other communities so we we expect our partner to play every single role they're our friend they're our counsel they're you know um you know they're our they're our god you know right if we're not you know so there's so many different things that a partner has become so I think that's also really important to to recognize um and, and I agree it starts with us as long as we say because because I'm very much about we need individual organizational and social change and and we need all those things I don't want to be pointing to individuals and saying you as individuals have to change um, because, again, that leads to that blame and, and sort of shame. Right. But at the same time, the way social norms change and the way organizations change is from the decisions that people make every single day and the behaviors we demonstrate every single day. Now, yes. those behaviors happen because they're reinforced and rewarded so I mean I think that's where it comes back to it's it's what are we rewarding those systems those reward systems um, are really for me at the heart of this because then people can change and by default make different decisions and and demonstrate different behaviors I think there's that combination of people yes stepping up and and making other choices but if you make those choices so difficult to do if you penalize those choices like a man trying to get paternity leave gets penalized in in his career then there's no incentive to do it so I think we really have to think about where we're putting our money because we we do need to shift it to collaboration which creates innovation and to equality and pay, I, I think that's one of the root causes of being able to change all, all the other things as well. Because it's basically saying we are rewarding people for the work they do. Right, right. No, that's so incredibly powerful and well said. And I think a good way to kind of wrap everything up. So, 
Before we go, I'd love to have you tell us a little bit more about your podcast and how everybody can can find more from you. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah, the best way to to find out and um, connect with me is through my website, which is drjacquelinekerr.com. My podcast is there, Overcoming Working on Burnout. Previously, I've interviewed coaches and HR people and advocates. This season, I'm interviewing dads. Next season is much more about CEOs and systems change, who at the top is making some of the decisions to make systems change and case studies of people that have actually changed their workplace. For example, introducing a, a you know, mental health channel on Slack or something. So I'm excited to present all those great examples of how change can happen. My uh, TEDx talk, How to Stop Burnout Before It Starts, is there. And then this year, I am hoping to learn launch on my entrepreneurial journey a new leadership program for women, which is about leading change. So giving you a vision for what is the change you want to make to create a more healthy and diverse workplace. And then how do you do it? Like what is behavior change science? How do we change things? And then what is it you can do as an agent of change? And then how do you set up the conditions for change in your organization and incentivize other people to change and to also just change this whole mindset from this fear of making mistakes into the, the way people change and the way systems change is experimentation. And there will be failures in those experimentations. That's the whole point. Um, and that's how change happens. So it's really embracing this experimental mindset, shared decision making, which again in business has been shown to be so key to um, breakout innovation. And it's called in my, for my science, it's called a peer learning collaborative where everybody works together and has these learning cycles towards actually like moving something to become a better quality program or product. But essentially that is how change happens when it's done together not in isolation and it's done with purpose and it's done with the right tools so I'm looking forward to launching that this year I love it and without fear and encouraging women to feel like you aren't going to screw everything up if you make a mistake right and that is I think so so compromising to and damaging for so many women. So I love that you're doing this work. That's super, super cool. And I'll, I'll mention this when we put the podcast episode out as well, but the TEDx talk is incredible. And for those of you who haven't out there who haven't listened to it, you absolutely have to. So it's very, very empowering and encouraging. So thank you so much, Jacqueline. This has been a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate you being here today. Thank you so much for having me. This has been fun. And also, like you say, I love the deep conversations. They fill me. Always. Well, we'll have to have you back another time. So (laughs) to be continued. (laughs) 